Hi there. Welcome to the fifth fiblet of season two. I'm your host, Laura, and I am delighted to present four stories about the prestigious Palmer House Hotel in Chicago. According to Wikipedia, the Palmer House, a Hilton hotel, is a historic hotel in Chicago's Loop area. It is a member of the Historic Hotels of America program of the National Trust for Historic Preservation. The Palmer House was the city's first hotel with elevators and the first hotel with electric light bulbs and telephones in the guest rooms. The hotel has been dubbed the longest continuously operating hotel in North America. As a special note, though, it did close in March of 2020 because of the COVID-19 pandemic, but it reopened on March 28, 2021 the day I recorded this fiblet. So, as always, three of my stories are published articles from newspapers, and one is my own invention. Listen closely to see if you can determine which article is fact or fiction. Ready to play? Now, everybody, these are your choices. Uh, as I said, they all have some relation to the historic Palmer House Hotel. Choice number one. <coughs> Opium smuggling from the St. Louis Globe Democrat on the 22nd of March, 1888, page three. A huge opium smuggling conspiracy is being unraveled in Chicago. For some time, the Custom House officials had been looking for a quantity of smuggled opium, which it was thought arrived in this city from New York, instead of from the Pacific Coast, where a close watch has been kept. For a month, Special Agent Crowley has been engaged in an active search for the stuff, but it was not until about 10 days ago that a clue was found which, when followed up, resulted in the discovery and seizure at Fort Wayne, Indiana of a small quantity of the drug. This capture in itself was an important one, but its result was a vastly greater consequence, for the seizure divulged a gang of smugglers who have been engaged in the trade for years and who have millions of dollars invested in it. It was learned that the Fort Wayne opium was only a small portion of the original consignment and that a large quantity was in possession of a member of the gang who was stopping at the Palmer House in Chicago. Papers were sworn out before Commissioner Hoyne and placed in the hands of Deputy Marshal Bouchard for service. He, with Special Agent Crowley, went to the Palmer House, where a thorough investigation was made, but the smuggler was gone. He was traced to a house on Wabash Avenue, from there to the west side, and thence to a room on Harrison Street, where on Friday afternoon, he was arrested by the deputy. In his room was a small, gray, canvas-covered trunk, and in this was about 125 pounds of opium. The prisoner was taken to the marshal's office where he was locked in the cage. Here he was visited by Agent Crowley and Collector Seaburger, but refused to open his mouth. He denied all connection with any gang of smugglers, but would say nothing more. The following day he was taken to jail where he is now confined. The news of the arrest created quite a stir in the department at Washington. And for a time, the wires were kept busy with orders and instructions to the Treasury agents here. The man arrested Friday is probably named E.W. Brown of New York. That, at least, is what he inscribed on the Palmer House Register. The hotel clerk was unable to give an adequate description of Brown, except that he was swell-looking. 
Choice number two. George Reynolds Jules from the St. Louis Globe Democrat, the 3rd of November, 1877, page two. A press dispatch from Chicago published in yesterday's New York World said that in the trunk of James Barry, the Palmer House robber, was found $1,000 worth of jewelry stolen from George Reynolds, the actor. In the Palmer House robberies, there was a female accomplice to Barry who has not been arrested as yet. The manner in which the Chicago robberies were committed is so similar to that practiced by the woman who robbed Mr. Reynolds and others at the New York Hotel last June that it leads to a very natural suspicion that the same person was the thief in both instances. The manner of the thefts and the fact that a part of the Reynolds jewelry was found in the possession of Barry make it very nearly certain that this suspicion is well-founded. The Chicago papers tell of a woman who has for two years past been carrying on a most successful system of robbery by hiring herself as a servant and then robbing her employers. All efforts to catch her have been unavailing, and the Chicago Times intimates very plainly that the facts in the case, developed in a vigilant search instituted by the United Action of two of the women's victims, point very directly at collusion between the woman and the police authorities. It is thought in Chicago that this woman and Barry's accomplice are the same person. Her manner of procedure was to follow an advertisement for a cook and securing the situation to perform its duties. She appears to have been such a skilled servant as to make the family for whom she was working regard her as a valuable acquisition to their domestic service. She was not only able to cook deliciously, but was expert in all the little arts of female handicraft and was ever willing to employ them for those about her. With such rare abilities, it was not long before the greatest confidence was placed in her, and availing herself of this, she waited her opportunity and took off everything in the house that she could conveniently carry away. It is probable that after one of these thefts, she came to New York, secured employment as above stated, and returned to Chicago after the Reynolds robbery. Mistress Beckwaith and Cornell of Chicago, two of the gentlemen who had lost by the woman, determined jointly to catch her if possible, and with this purpose, they arranged a systematic search for her. They learned that in each instance where a robbery had been committed of which the woman was suspected, that she had obtained her position by answering a newspaper advertisement. They had the papers read every day, and each advertiser for a cook was visited in the hope that they might thus bag their game. Several times they heard through the detectives working for them that a woman of the description given was in a certain place, which she had obtained in the same way theretofore practiced. When the gentleman would be taken to identify her, she was always gone, had, in fact, just left. In this search, these gentlemen spent several hundred dollars, for they paid promptly every demand made upon them. Her escape each time discouraged the gentlemen in pursuit, and they gave it up, not altogether satisfied that their money would not have been better spent in watching the detectives than in paying them to catch this wily thief. The Chicago Times expresses a hope that Barry can be induced to reveal the name of his confederate and thus lead to her capture. Choice number three. Brutal murder of a prominent man last night. The Muncie Evening Press, the 21st of May, 1908, page one. An electrical purchasing agent was found dead in an alley. He'd been attending a Chicago meeting. The murderer apparently went to the Palmer House after the crime was committed. 
The body of R.C.P. Holmes, purchasing agent for the Commonwealth Electric Company, was found in a downtown alley early today. He had been murdered and robbed. His skull was fractured and his throat indicated that he had been choked. The pockets of his clothing were turned inside out. The body showed that there had been a desperate struggle. Both of Holmes's eyes had been blackened and his whole body was covered with bruises. Holmes' watch and all of his money and valuables were gone. Holmes was last seen alive at 2 o'clock this morning at the Auditorium Hotel, where he attended a convention of electrical men. A vest containing a silver match safe and a watch believed to have been that of Holmes was found in the toilet room of the Palmer House. A scrub woman found these articles. The vest is an old one, and the police believe it is the property of the robbers. Holmes was one of the most prominent men in his line of work in this country. He generally carried considerable money on his person, and it is supposed that the robbers knew this. The police are working on what seems to be a promising clue. Choice number four. Shootout in the halls of Palmer House results in death of G-Man. From the Inter-Ocean, the 24th of October, 1925, page one. Martin Durkin, a convict who had escaped from the state prison at Joliet, has been recovered too late to prevent the tragic death of Federal Bureau of Investigation's Special Agent Edwin C. Shanahan. Shanahan, who was in this city investigating a rash of automobile thefts, encountered escaped convict Martin Durkin as he attempted to hotwire a Palmer House guest's Model T, which was parked in the hospital's parking facility on Michigan Avenue. When Shanahan confronted the thief, Durkin abandoned his efforts to appropriate the automobile and ran into the sumptuous lobby of the esteemed establishment with the G-Man at his heels. When Durkin began firing his revolver in the halls, guests screamed and took cover in their rooms. Shanahan, not to be intimidated by the reprobate scoundrel, returned fire and cornered the fugitive in the hotel's elevator. Durkin, the vilest of villains, knowing he was trapped by the agent, fired one last shot point-blank into the agent's heart, which resulted in Shanahan's collapse. Durkin attempted to run over the bloody and unconscious body of Shanahan, but was apprehended by hotel staff who held him until the Chicago police arrived. Tragically, Shanahan died upon arrival at Northwestern University Medical Center. All right, there you have it, your four choices. Which one's the fiction? Is it choice one, opium smuggling? Choice two, George Reynolds' jewels. Choice three, brutal murder of prominent man last night. Or choice four, shootout in the halls of the Palmer House results in the death of a G-man. While you consider your choices, here's an advertisement from the February 5th, 1905 Chicago Tribune. In these days of humbuggery and deception, the manufacturers of patent medicine, as a rule, seem to think their medicines will not sell unless they claim that it will cure every disease under the sun. And they never think of leaving out dyspepsia and stomach troubles. In the face of these absurd claims, it is refreshing to note that the proprietors of Stewart's dyspepsia tablets have carefully refrained from making any undue claims or false representations regarding the merits of this most excellent remedy for dyspepsia and stomach troubles. They make but one claim for it, and that is that for indigestion and various stomach troubles, Stewart's dyspepsia tablets is a radical cure. They go no farther than this, and any man or woman suffering from indigestion, chronic or nervous dyspepsia who will give the remedy a trial will find that nothing is claimed for it that the facts will not fully sustain. 
In using Stewart's dyspepsia tablets, no dieting was required. Simply eat plenty of wholesome food and take these tablets at each meal, thus assisting and resting the stomach, which rapidly regains its proper digestive power when the tablets will no longer be required. at 50 cents per package. I found a fascinating study of the Stewart Medical Company written by uh, Teresa Lou Trupiano. I've included a link to her thesis in Fiblet 2.5 show notes. And really, if you're interested in the history of patent medicines, I encourage you to check it out. It's fascinating. Here we are. We've come to time. We've come to the time where I tell you which story was my creation. Drum roll, please. The fiction today was shootout in the halls of the Palmer House results in death of Jimian. While the events in my story were fiction, uh, Special Agent Shanahan was tragically murdered on October 11, 1925 by a car thief named Martin Durkin. According to the FBI.gov, Shanahan was murdered in a Chicago garage by a professional car thief named Martin Durkin. In 1919, car thefts had become a national problem and the U.S. passed the Dyer Act, which made it a federal crime to steal an automobile. Interestingly, the Dyer Act enabled law enforcement to capture a number of fugitives, including military deserters, human traffickers, or mobsters. Shanahan's tragic death was the first murder by a bureau agent in the line of duty. Durkin was eventually captured with the help of an insurance company detective. So I mixed a little bit of fact in there with that fiction, but, but the story didn't happen at the Palmer House Hotel, and it wasn't that exciting of a shootout. But that concludes the first third of Factor Fiction Season 2. And I'm going to be taking a two-week spring break. But then I'll be back with more stories of crimes and criminals from Chicago's past. As always, listen closely because it's difficult to know if what you hear is fact or fiction. Goodbye.